Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by my friend Rusty Reno. Rusty is the editor of First Things Magazine, a wonderful publication. It's one of the handful of publications I actually have sitting physically in hard copy edition on my coffee table, along with really just a small subset of others. So if you're not checking out firstthings.com, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's one of the leading organs of the right. And I suspect that we're going to get into a lot of kind of higher level kind of intellectual weeds with Rusty. He really, I think, is a, is a thinker and a writer on that level. But before then, I want to kind of do something a little more practical and talk about the 2022 midterm elections. In fact, Rusty's actually an interesting transition to that. I anticipate in our conversation with Rusty, we're probably going to start talking about, at some point, a very famous March 2019 manifesto that went up at first things entitled, quote, against the dead consensus. And it was a manifesto signed by probably 10 to 15 leading intellectuals, thinkers, pundits, writers, and so forth in kind of the broader new right traditionalist conservative space, effectively saying that there was no going back, that Trump had happened, whether you love him, hate him, if you're somehow neutral and no one's neutral on the guy, but Trump happened and there's no going back to the pre-Trump status quo ante. Now, of course, Trump is a human. He's, you know, he's going to he's going to pass away at some point. So it's not like we're going to have a dictator for life or anything here. The point rather is that the policies that were initiative, the substantive shift as far as thinking about issues like trade and immigration and economics in a more kind of realistic, less ideologically abstract version. That was obviously the topic of our conversation last week with Oren Cass. If you heard the podcast episode last week, the point is that that is here to stay. And we're not going to go back to the days when kind of laissez-faire fundamentalism, eye-pencil dorkery, frankly, at the expense of kind of the concrete, tangible day-to-day interests of voters and especially kind of cultural conservatives was necessarily taken for granted. So one instance of what I have seen over the past couple of weeks of the old guard, the very dead consensus against which that March 2019 manifesto was was arguing, was decrying, one instance where that old guard has really kind of taken issue with the new guard and what I think is a really obtuse and frankly stupid, but nonetheless revealing for us way, is happening out in Arizona. So Arizona is politically a very, very interesting state. It's a pretty red state historically. It's a home of Barry Goldwater, of course. It gave Republicans huge majorities in most presidential election years, statewide races of, of various sorts for, for many decades. In recent years, that has started to change. The presidential election in 2020 in Arizona was famously close, right down to the whole Maricopa County audit and the recount, which I think a lot of people had very heated thoughts on one way or the other. 
the sitting governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, is a very popular Republican, perhaps libertarian leaning at times, but certainly a Republican. It will be interesting to see what Doug Ducey, if anything, publicly does for the rest of his political career. We'll see whether maybe he'll just kind of go away. He's term limited. Carrie Lake is the Republican nominee and currently is polling slightly ahead in the gubernatorial race in Arizona this fall. But I want to talk about the Senate. Specifically, what's going on there in Arizona is you have two Democratic senators, despite a very popular Republican governor. Those two Democratic senators are Kirsten Sinema, who, along with Joe Manchin, kind of forms the moderate sub-caucus, if you will, in the Senate Democratic Caucus. And then you have Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is the husband of Gabby Giffords, the former Arizona congresswoman who was tragically shot. Thank God she survived. Mark Kelly kind of rode that public sympathy from his wife as long as his story of being an ex-astronaut, which he talks about seemingly all the time on the campaign trail. The guy cannot stop talking about how he, he was an astronaut. You know what it kind of reminds me of? It reminds me of John Kasich, from the, uh, John Kasich from the 2016 presidential primary. My father was a mailman. You guys remember that? It was just so obnoxious. It was so annoying. So Mark Kelly kind of does that with the whole astronaut shtick. Now, challenging him was a very competitive field of Republicans in the Republican primary. The winner was Blake Masters. Now, I am not neutral on the question of Blake Masters. I'm an unmitigated fan of the guy. I do not think it's betraying any confidence to say I've gotten to know him a little bit. We've met numerous times. Spent a good amount of time with him at a dinner out in Arizona back in February. I'm just a huge fan of the guy. When we talk about what the new right is, of which this podcast is very much a, a component, trying to chart a path forward, economically, culturally, civilizationally, and so forth, Blake gets it. He just does. Whether it's immigration, trade, foreign policy, big tech, just the idea of a household in America, that that household should get by on a single income, that you don't, shouldn't have to have two parents both working just to support it. Blake gets that. He just does. And that is why it's so interesting to me that over the past couple of weeks, you have seen the old guard, the National Review Guard, just freak out against Blake Masters, who is currently neck and neck. It's a very, very tight race against Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly has a huge fundraising advantage, roughly $25 million to like $1.5 million cash on hand at the time that I'm recording this. So what happened was, after Blake prevailed in a very competitive Senate primary, in that primary he had staked out some very very fiery conservative positions, among them a pro-life position that I personally support and have been on the record supporting for a while now, which is the idea of constitutional personhood, that unborn children should be viewed as persons under the 14th Amendment, whether that comes from reinterpreting the 14th Amendment in the proper way, or I think as Blake's campaign had it by actually amending the Constitution to add a human life amendment, which, by the way, has been part of the Republican Party's official national platform for many decades. People often forget that. So what happened was in the aftermath of the primary, Blake seems to have stealth edited his website to effectively remove that particular provision. He has not shifted his position on the issue. He is still emphatically pro-life. Susan B. Anthony, less a leading pro-life organization, came out. It's just a choice of emphasis, what he's choosing to emphasize in a very purple state against a well-funded incumbent Mark Kelly in an environment, particularly after the Dobbs abortion case where the abortion issue seems to be hurting Republicans in a lot of states. Practically, I totally understand where Blake is coming from. I think probably misguided to stealth edit. It's the whole Streisand effect idea. You guys know how, how it goes when you kind of try to hide something. Oftentimes, it uh, unintentionally blows up. I've learned this lesson the hard way myself, to be completely frank with you. 
But the old guard is freaked out. Kevin Williamson, the most hysterical never-Trumper over a National Review, says he doesn't deserve your vote. Alexandra DeSanctis, a pro-life writer for National Review, is calling for people not to support Blake Masters as well. Dan McLaughlin, who I debated back at Yale in April, is saying that Blake Masters now is no different than anyone else. What a piece of crap. Total crap. This is about the worst kind of sinecure, securing, job fetishization, gatekeeping paranoia, as you can put it. That is what is happening here. National Review, the fusionist old guard, is freaking out about the ascension of these various new right candidates. Blake Masters in Arizona, J.D. Vance in Ohio, perhaps Adam Laxalt in Nevada. They're freaking out. This is about organizational and intellectual gatekeeping and nothing else. Do not buy the crap if you are in Arizona and listening to this podcast. Go ahead and vote for Blake Masters. The guy will be a fantastic member of the U.S. Senate caucus. No doubt about that in my mind whatsoever. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. We want to get into a deep dive there with Rusty Reno. So stay with us. We'll be right back with Rusty. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. So as previously mentioned, thrilled to be joined this week by the great Rusty Reno, who I've really gotten the pleasure of getting to know a little bit just over the past couple of years. Rusty is the editor of First Things Magazine, which is featured quite prominently on my personal coffee table here in in my apartment in in Miami, Florida. It's one of the handful of publications that I actually subscribe to the hard copy, and I would encourage all of you to do the same. So Rusty, thanks so much for joining us this week. Pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to know you've got a hard copy on your coffee table. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a small group. It's a, it's first things the American Conservative Claremont Review of Books, American Affairs, maybe one other that I'm forgetting. But it, but it's really a fabulous publication. And you know, I, I think it'd be helpful for maybe the listeners who are less familiar with first things to kind of just let's start at that level. I mean, like what from your vantage point is first things is kind of role within the broader constellation of the conservative kind of intellectual and media firmament, if you will. Our, our job is to be a vigorous religious voice and socially conservative voice in the debate about the American right. The magazine was founded to, to ensure the ongoing role of religious reflection in, in American policy and politics. And you've been doing exactly that and in, in ecumenical fashion, too, which I, or at least kind of a Jewish Christian ecumenical fashion of sorts with, you know, with perhaps kind of a, a Catholic tint to it, certainly. But I think you've been very, very fair, um, certainly. And, you know, I, 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 I obviously personally am Jewish. And that's kind of actually where I was hoping to start the conversation with you, Rusty, actually, if because, you know, you are such a public prominent voice for social conservatism. Uh, you're a Catholic convert, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. You, you know, you're very public in, in your Catholicism. 
But I, I was so struck, actually, when I first encountered an essay that you, that you wrote for Commentary Magazine, I think it was 15 years now, um, entitled Faith in, in the Flesh, about kind of your, your, your Jewish daughter's bat mitzvah. And, and I was kind of just hoping to kind of hear some more reflections on that essay. It's something that I don't think I've ever really brought up in conversation with you. because it was, yeah, I, I was almost moved to tears, honestly, reading this essay. It was very powerful. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious how you and, 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 and your wife do this, I guess, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. I mean, you're such a public uh, Catholic and you, you have an observant Jewish daughter. How does, how does that work, basically? I think that in the 21st century, to believe that the authority of God humanizes us rather than dominates us in a negative sense, but humanizes and elevates us, is uh, to agree with your spouse about that in the current context is, is a pretty powerful agreement. Uh, and it's, a, it's certainly um, enough to uh, create a great deal of mutual support for our, our different, quite different religious practices. So I think that's really the key, and that's the reason why First Things can sustain, as you point out, an ecumenical um, slate of writers, Jewish writers, Protestant writers, Catholic writers, is that we all agree that that you know that God's commandments are elevate and dignify our lives. They're not burdens that we have to um, we have to carry. That really runs counter to the standard. You know, modern Enlightenment narrative that, you know, you become more of an adult to the extent that you decide more things for yourself. And so the self-defined life is the highest form of life for the modern Enlightenment vision of human flourishing. Whereas a religious view is that the highest and most noble, noble form of life is one of obedience to, to God. I mean, I would think about it like my dog, my little puppy. Uh, you know, if I don't give my dog commands, the dog will just be feral. And so if God's commands are what allow us to be more than human, um, it gives us an element of the divine in our lives. And I think that's often what's missing in our secular, increasingly secular public square. Young people aren't provided with a vision of something more than sort of the, the merely human. And uh, because we're made for transcendence, um, as human beings, we're sort of made for something higher. If we don't seek it in whatever fashion, um, we tend to be abandoned to our baser passions. And that is a very traditional view of liberty as having, you know, these these commandments, whether they're from a religious perspective or a, a more kind of secular of the state perspective, the the very idea of binding law as not necessarily chaining you down, but actually liberating you, you know, that that would have been common parlance, I think, to the ancients, to the Greeks, and the Romans, but it really has just fallen so out of favor with even the the so-called American conservative movement over the past, you know, 20, 30 40 years or so. And I, I, I guess one question I would have for you was, you know, when you were kind of coming up through the ranks uh, as kind of a fighting kind of social conservative crusader, did you feel like you were inundated by folks even within our side who did not appreciate this? I mean, did you feel the intellectual tension from kind of the fusionist consensus, for lack of a better word? You know, there is a, there is a, um, 
there's an interesting dimension of modern politics very much influencing T.S. Eliot says in the um, in one of his plays that we seek justice without virtue. And I guess what we mean is this, there's a kind of dream in modern political imagination. And that dream is that we can break through and achieve a kind of utopia where we no longer need to use our prudence to exercise judgment and, and, um, and try to forge a, a form of ordered liberty. I think ordered liberty is the kind of the American way of talking about the, the, the classical position that you described, Josh. And so on the right, on the left, this utopianism is as best expressed by Marx. You kind of break through um, and you wither away at the state and we fish in the morning and, you know, discuss philosophy in the afternoon and that sort of thing. But on the right, it's really probably best represented in someone like Milton Friedman, who was not a utopian, but in the sense he, had, he knew that there had to be commandment somewhere, but he thought that the best society is, minarch, is minarchist, um, the least amount of command and the greatest scope for freedom, uh, where freedom is understood as being able to do what you want personally in the moment. And he thought that the market is the great miraculous instrument for creating order out of the anarchy of individual choice. And I think this has very much bewitched the imagination of the American right for the last couple of generations, three generations, probably. It, it's fitting, you know, it's the right wing version of, of a kind of 1960s um, uh, overthrowing of bourgeois convention. Um, it, it's a way of uh, participating in, in that really widespread dynamic in the post-war culture of, of the West broadly. So we have our own 68 mentality on, on the American right, right, I think. Right. I, I, I guess one alternative way of phrasing the question would be if you're kind of trying to do like an, like an intellectual genealogy of kind of the modern conservative movement. So basically, if we, you know, if we start the modern conservative movement as, uh, as I think, you know, Matt Continetti and most of the kind of boutique niche historians in this particular realm would do, after World War II and kind of the 1950s and uh, William F. Buckley and the founding of National Review, I, I guess, do you think that that the original sin, so to speak, to kind of use like the religious phraseology of this, this conversation, was the original sin of the conservative movement right then and there with fusionism at a theoretical level? Or did this, did the kind of over-libertarianization, if you will, start to develop in kind of subsequent decades, a little more closer to the present? Uh, I mean, I Hayek's Road to Serfdom is, uh, is a, a hugely important book, very influential on a wide range of people on the right, including William F. Buckley. Um, and the Road to Serfdom uh, participates. I mean, it's, again, neither Hayek nor Friedman were utopian in the thoroughgoing sense of the word, but both were deeply, deeply suspicious of um, social authority, which they saw as, um, you know, being exploited to, in both fascism and communism to crush the human spirit. Um, so it's, I think it was natural that fusionism would try to, would try to um, um, draw upon. It's also part of the American tradition of freedom. Um, so I don't, look about, I don't look back on it as an original sin. Uh, my view of politics is you, you, you respond to the realities 
of the moment. So let's head to a very quick commercial break. I, I'm on, on the other side of this break, let's kind of bring it out of the clouds a little bit, bring it a little more to, to the tangible here and now of, of day-to-day <laughs> politics. Thank you to the audience for letting me intellectually nerd out here a little bit with Rusty Reno. So please stay with us. We'll be right back on the other side. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. So, Rusty, you used the phrase consolidationist, and that really makes me think back. So when Orrin Cass started his American Compass group a couple of years ago, I think you and I were two of his initial kind of uh, crew of, of bloggers to help get that particular organization started. And you had this one blog post that's really struck with me the, over the past year, year and a half or so since you wrote it. And if I remember it correctly, it was talking about a consolidationist agenda for the right. And, and I, I, want, I don't want to speak for you, but the basic argument here is to reconsolidate a, 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 the citizenry the nation state after decades and decades of neoliberalism and social liberalism. But as, as far as what kind of the Republican Party and conservative activists and kind of the policies that we should be thinking about that might run a little counterintuitive to this Milton Friedman paradigm we were talking about, what, what kind of policies come to mind? I see the three great consolidating elements of any society as faith, family, and flag. And the one policy would be, I think we should make, we made uh, overturning Roe the a focal point for judicial appointments for a generation and with success. I think one of the things that people on the right should be demanding is an overturn of the crucial Supreme Court decisions in the early 60s that prohibited school prayer. I, I, you know, I think Yoram Hazani and I are the only two people who really think this is important. <laughs> but that's the faith element, pro-marriage policies, you know, perhaps um, limiting welfare benefits only to those who are married. That's a radical proposal. Um, another proposal we're developing for First Things is to allocate a greater amount of money in Social Security to those who have had children. Uh, so... I think there are all kinds of innovative ways. I think Warren Cass is a good, uh, is comp, uh, his American Compass has been really working to try to figure out how to um, have have policies that can actually be pro-family. And then flag, um, I think that, I mean, one policy I think is that we should, we should say that no one with dual citizenship can hold public office in the United States. And uh, I mean, these are, these are, these are, I mean, I'm not a policy guy. Um, but I think that you do need to operationalize these three elements, faith, uh, family, and flag, with policies that um, privilege it. And uh, there's only so much you can do. I mean, I'm a separation of church and state guy, and I mean, I'm a First Amendment guy. And so I think our, our system of keeping government at arm's length from um, religion is a good idea. Uh, but, but I think 
to have a anodyne ecumenical school prayer to open school days in North Dakota, uh, at least, you know, a few tens of thousands of children would be exposed to the idea that there's something in life more than um, the, the, the scramble to get more or the pursuit of hedonistic pleasure that there is a transcendent horizon. So I think, I think those are the, those are one, those are ways of renewing what I call the anchors of any society. Um, society with, with weak and disintegrating families, a society with no sense of transcendence, um, a society without uh, a kind of vital patriotic culture, this is not going to endure long, for very long. It's well said. I agree with you on all counts. And, you know, you mentioned Yoram Hazoni there, and I, I don't want to issue too much of a spoiler alert, but uh, Yoram and I are working on something on that on that exact issue right now. I might talk to you offline about it at the at the at the appropriate time. But um, suffice it to say, some of us are still thinking about this, the the school prayer issue. But, you know, the invocation there of Yoram Hazoni is actually a logical place to take the conversation next. So he we had Yoram on this show maybe a couple months ago or so, around the time that his most recent book came out. And, you know, he's really made quite a name for himself. Uh, you know, he's been around for a while, but he's really kind of made more of a name for himself in recent years with his very public articulation of national conservatism, of a more avowedly nationalist uh, role for the conservative movement, for, by logical extension, the Republican Party as the natural partisan vehicle for that movement. I, I, I'd be curious for you, have you always thought of yourself as a nationalist, or is that kind of more of a is that more of a recent kind of pragmatic reaction to the deconsolidation that we see all around us? I think it's the latter. I think Yoram uh, uh, has a stronger theoretical um, commitment to nationalism, and I think mine is more prudential. I think I'm not an isms guy, uh, but I think national. I mean, isms are ways of organizing political priorities, and I think we live in a time after the end of the Cold War with 30 years of globalization being, being, being championed really by, in a bipartisan way, left and right. We live in a time uh, where the people who are the most elite members of our society have widely divergent interests from ordinary Americans. And so to speak of, call myself a nationalist means that I see that job number one for our political leadership today is to re-knit the interests of the elite with the ordinary person um, as much as possible. And that means giving the nation, national community, a, a political priority that it hasn't had over the last two generations. And is that was that part of the appeal of, of President Trump to you? Because I'm, you know, I'm thinking back, maybe it was uh, a year, maybe a little over a year ago now when I was co-hosting Newsweek's The Debate Podcast with my then co-host, Bad Younger Sargon. We had you on to, if I recall, to debate Michael Medved basically on on Trump. It was basically a Trump debate. Um, and to oversimplify things, you were the quote unquote pro-Trump side of, of that debate. Um, you, you know, which you and many other social conservative religious leaders, certainly not not everyone, but have um, over the course of his presidency did tend to to support him. Was it on nationalist grounds? Was it on, on, on more kind of populist grounds? Was he was he a tribune? What, what kind of led you to become kind of a, a, a vocal supporter of President Trump's not saying you never criticize him, of course, but generally speaking, a vocal supporter? Yeah, I think there are two elements. I mean, build a wall, tear up trade deals. Those are both very demotic and crude ways of emphasizing the need to reconsolidate uh, the national community to, to um, re-buttress the social contract in America. 
Now you can disagree with the policies and methods that he used, but he was he was um, he was addressing, saying out loud what uh, others were refusing to acknowledge, which is that the policies we've been pursuing for the last thirty years have done a great deal of damage to the social contract in America, and we have to reverse course. Okay, that's one thing. And the second thing is, you know, uh, at some point, if your enemies are my enemies, you're my friend, and I think the. You know, you had Mitt Romney, makers versus takers. You had Hillary Clinton, basket of deplorables. So you have a kind of bipartisan agreement among our political elites that our country is populated by, if you'll excuse my French, shitty people who we, are, we would be best off if they would somehow offloaded and we could replace them with uh, immigrants who are willing to work at a lower wage um, and won't challenge us for political power. Uh, now, you know, I, I and I, I, I thought that um, Trump's um, Trump's evocation of ire from all the right places uh, really reassured me that he was he was um, touching and challenging a kind of complacent, self-satisfied elite that desperately needs to be challenged and reformed. Yeah, and there's one thing certainly that Trump viscerally brought to the table. People saw this on his Twitter every day, on his media appearances, the way he, that he handled the media and the White House and all of that, was he brought a certain level of, of pugnaciousness, frankly, uh, of, um, of truculence, maybe you might say, to the Oval Office. And I, I kind of draw a direct line from Trump's descent down that gilded escalator in Trump Tower in 2015 to our mutual friend Saurabh Amari's publication of his now famous fusillade against David Frenchism um, at First Things Magazine. And I think it was May 2019, if I have the month correctly there. I, I, and, and, you know, just to, we had Saurabh on the podcast recently, but it, this was really kind of a, a an apocal essay, I think, as far as kind of the, the formation of the then nascent new right, which takes a really no holds barred, or I'm crudely oversimplifying, but a much more kind of robust, muscular, for lack of a better term, approach to the day-to-day political mudslinging fight. But, you know, again, that's somewhat of an interesting fit with kind of the the religious and social conservative makeup of many of the people who are advancing these arguments. And I, I, I'd be curious in your mind how that how you're able to to reconcile that. I, I, I agree with this, to be clear. I've written publicly in favor of a more kind of muscular conservatism many times. But, I mean, you know, you and I know who we're talking about here. A lot of kind of the more kind of squeamish um, folks uh, would say, oh, it's not particularly religious to engage in this level of harsh fisticuffs. But, you know, surely you, I, you would not agree with that. I guess I'm curious why. You know, I, I think that... Uh uh, you know, Jesus teaches be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. He just doesn't tell you when to bewitch. Uh, <laughs> and I think that the political realm is a kind of serpent-wise realm. And I think that uh, religious folks certainly need to engage in, they don't, it. St. Paul teaches never do evil that good might come. So we certainly shouldn't be cynically um, using various slogans and and statements uh, that we don't even believe in just to gain political advantage. But if you think that having transvestites read stories to small children is harmful to their development and to the and is harmful to the future of our society, then we ought to say so. And we ought to use the power of government within the constraints of our constitutional system, use the power of government to try to limit the influence of these sort of disordered people 
um, over the development of children. Um, and so this, you know, I feel the same way about Ron DeSantis's approach to, you know, the educational establishment and its desire to sexualize children and introduce various ideologies at a young age. Um, so I, I think that this is just ordinary. I mean, I, I find myself baffled to think, well, why wouldn't you be pugnacious in trying to pursue what you think are good policies that are good for your fellow citizens? It really is baffling that things like opposing the sexualization of children in the K through five primary school education setting is considered like a radical position nowadays. Um, it, it's both baffling and it's it, it, it's frankly, it, it, you know, it makes one kind of weep for the fact that we have reached this this particular state. Um, Rusty, I want to ask you just kind of one final question here before we wrap up. I think I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't ask you. So, you know, we mentioned Sorab, who's, who's a very good friend of mine. I've been, you know, good friends with him for a few years now. But Sorab has become a very public-facing, um, you know, Catholic integralist, along with folks like uh, Adrian Vermeule, Gladden Pappin, uh, Pat- Patrick Deneen is not quite an integralist, but certainly kind of, um, you know, uh, is integralist friendly. And, you know, I- I'm, I'm personally friendly or friends with, with all of these folks, to be clear. But, I- I be- but at an intellectual level, you know, y- y- you have uh, rejected integralism. You refer to yourself as kind of a, a you- or just earlier you said you were a separation of church and state, First Amendment kind of guy. I- I'd be curious why you reject in- in- integralism. The First Things Magazine was... I think founded to try to feather the clutch, so to speak, on this question, and it is it is a commitment to the liberal framework of the American founding, but a conviction that we had to have, if you will, an integralist culture underlying a a, a, a political system that is um, more agnostic about man's final end. But I don't think we can have a functional political culture. The founder of the magazine, Richard John Newhouse, didn't think so either. You can't have a functional religious uh, political culture unless you you have some kind of at least soft consensus about man's final end, that we're made for something greater than the goods of this world. And I don't think we have to agree on Catholic doctrine. Um, I think we can have a functional society with an ongoing uh, um, debate about what man's final end is, uh, but we have to acknowledge that it's it is a politically important element. So I think I would call myself a, um, a, a practical, not theoretical, integralist, so to speak, or a soft, not hard integralist. I guess as a describe, or a uh, person thinking that the cultural. And I think Vermeule has been very good about pointing out that the political decisions and political apparatus affects the cultural consensus. And so we shouldn't, shouldn't be naive about that. You know, Rusty, you and I could go for a while. Unfortunately, I think we're out of time for this particular episode, but thanks so much for joining us this week. And, um, you know, where can the listeners go ahead and find first things? Firstthings.com every day, new material, as well as access to snippets from the magazine, but all of the cool kids subscribe to first things magazine. So, I urge your listeners to subscribe. Firstthings.com. Well, the cool kids do include yours truly, I might add. So, Rusty, thanks again and uh, take care. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So I want to kind of circle back to where we were at the beginning of this conversation, which is the Arizona Senate race, this fabricated really kind of controversy pertaining to Blake Masters's campaign site on abortion, what it says about the new right, the old right, and so forth here. So to kind of just reiterate the main point, which is the most important point from my perspective, this tempest in a teapot, this largely fabricated controversy is really just about organizational and intellectual gatekeeping. Again, no one has seen any evidence whatsoever that Blake Masters has shifted his position on abortion. He still identifies as pro-life. Rather, in his campaign ads and literature, now he's just talking about what is eminently achievable at the federal level, calling for a national ban on abortion when unborn children can feel pain, things of that nature. By the way, just aside, it is just so disgusting that the abortion regime in America, even in the aftermath of Dobbs, permits any place, any place where an unborn child can be terminated in utero when that unborn child can feel pain. Really just hideous. But in any event, nothing has changed from Blake Masters' substantive approach to abortion. Rather, this faux-ginned-up hysteria that you see from the fusionist old guard, right? This is what Rusty and I were talking about earlier in this conversation. We were talking about fusionism. We were talking about kind of the intellectual provenance of Frank Meyer and William F. Buckley and how the Against the Dead Consensus Manifesto at Rusty's publication, First Things, was against all of this. Again, you have to understand here, these people feel threatened. They feel threatened. When you hear some of us on kind of the new right decry conservatism, Inc., right? That's a phrase that gets tossed around a lot. I certainly have tossed it around myself on this podcast in my various writings. When you hear the phrase conservatism, Inc., getting tossed around, that is exactly the proper way to view this ridiculous flame war between National Review attacking Blake Masters out in Arizona going so far as to tell people, to tell Arizona Republicans, conservatives, not to support the young, talented, and promising Republican Senate nominee in a swing state in a midterm election year where control of the Senate is entirely up for grabs. That is the stance the National Review is taking. It's, of course, it's the quote-unquote principled stance, right? I mean, give me a break. But these are the same people again, who have to protect their intellectual terrain, and they do this day in and day out for a living. So organizational kind of intellectual turf war, especially when in the case of Blake Masters, he is kind of the explicit protege of Peter Thiel, Mr. New Right himself, of course, the former PayPal mafia 
head honcho who is disproportionately influential in the so-called new right as far as the various organizations that he gives to, as far as the things that he says, the candidates that he funds, again, Blake and J.D. Vance in Ohio being the two most prominent of them. That is the only proper way to interpret this and really just shame on National Review. Shame on National Review for, for doing this, for what is clearly a coordinated gang up on a promising, talented, young Republican Senate candidate in a swing state in an election year fighting tremendous uphill currents on the abortion issue. I say that obviously as someone who was as pro-life as they come. You've heard me on this podcast time and time again discuss that issue. Again, Blake should not have stealth edited the website that was just easily foreseeable in Streisand effect fashion that it would backfire. But the idea here that you should not vote for him is just totally ludicrous and insane. More generally speaking here, I also just find the notion that a lot of these Senate races are or at least have been tilting to the Democratic Party to be massively, massively overstated. Perhaps for a few weeks there, a lot of these swing state races were starting to look a little more favorable to Democrats. But I can tell you, in the aftermath of Joe Biden's ridiculous gambit, his stunt, his cross-subsidization of the higher education cartel in the form of this quote-unquote forgiveness of up to $10,000 in student loans for so many of our higher educated, wealthier Americans, I think it has really backfired. I think that has backfired along with the fact that this Joe Biden, Kareem Jean-Pierre coordinated semi-fascist line of attack against the quote-unquote MAGA Republicans, that seems to have backfired too because it's it's rallied up, it has riled up a lot of Republican voters across the country. You start to see this in the polling. Down in Georgia, Herschel Walker has taken a lead over Raphael Warnock, who's also raising a ton of money, by the way. In Pennsylvania, the polls are really tightening between John Fetterman, who can barely finish a sentence. The guy is not mentally well and do not believe anyone who tells you that he is. Those polls are very much tightening between Dr. Oz and John Fetterman. Seems like out in Nevada, Adam Laxalt is certainly getting very close to the margin of error. And again, recall that the polling industry for the past three cycles at least has been systemically biased against Republicans. You start to, you start, you start to feel a little good about our chances. The issue, the issue, of course, is funding. The Arizona race is ground zero for this. It's not good. I mean, Mark Kelly has so much more money than Blake Masters right, right now. I mean, if you're Peter Thiel... There's this whole other flame war going on between Peter Thiel and Mitch McConnell about who should be funding these candidates. That's, you know, the the National Review attack on Blake Masters can be viewed as as a proxy, perhaps, for that. Maybe National Review is just doing Mitch McConnell's dirty work, trying to get Peter Thiel to bail out his own guy. But until next week, thanks for listening in. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time.